date night uh, towards the end of last year, I took my wife to the cinema. Uh, being the hopeless romantic that I am, I took her to see Everest. It is a film about a team of climbers uh, seeking to scale, of course, the world's highest mountain. And actually, it's a phenomenal film in many respects. The director, um, I, I'm, I'm normally a bit silly when it comes to watching films, but I actually appreciated the director in this film. I thought, what is happening to me? Um, and, and he really draws you into the different characters who are making a climb. You're absorbed into the story in lots of ways to the point that you're just, you're just willing them to make it. Now, everything, therefore, about the film, in my view, was brilliant, except the ending. The ending was terrible. Spoiler alert. Everybody died. I mean, it, it, was just, it was just so sad. I couldn't believe it. It all happened so quickly. And, and, and you know, I, I, live, I have three young children, and I kind of live on a steady diet of Disney movies. So I was expecting some kind of happy ending towards the end, or a resurrection of someone at least. But no, when the credits rolled, I sat there stunned and said, is that it? And I was shocked. Now, I think I just... We've all experienced many terrible endings to films, I'm sure. But this, for me, was a terrible ending. And you might be tempted to think the same thing, actually, about the book of Acts. Because we've followed all the way through. Even now, recently, we've followed the life of Paul closely for many chapters. We've been entirely caught up into the story, the drama of his journey to Rome. But Luke's account has left many people surprised asking, is that it? Is that how this book ends? We're left hanging in a sense because we're asking, well, what happened when Paul met Emperor Nero? Uh, Jesus said earlier, as he appeared to him in Jerusalem, he said, you will appear before Caesar. So I believe that that happened indeed, but I want to know what happened. What did he say? How did Paul die? What were Paul's last words? Wouldn't you have liked to have known these things? Well, I would have. But we should not be disappointed. There's a good reason why Acts ends this way. Luke is careful. The Holy Spirit superintending Luke's writing is obviously careful. And it teaches us this. Acts is not primarily a history of the early church, though it provides a wonderful window on it. Acts is not primarily a two-part biography of the life in the escapades of Peter and the life in the escapades of Paul. Though they do, both accounts are wonderful, yet both accounts end abruptly. No, this book is actually about the gospel and its journey from Jerusalem, that epicenter, to the ends of the earth. It's a book about the acts of the risen Lord Jesus working powerfully and effectively through his weak church. And the reason why the book feels unfinished is because the story isn't over. And I think that's Luke's point. The mission is not yet finished. Now tonight what I want to do is draw our series to a close by zeroing in on two words from the final sentence of this book. And we read in that final sentence, boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the, the, without hindrance, 
you're like, that's two words, you're cheating. So actually, it's no. In the original language, the, that word without hindrance is one word that's unhinderedly, and it's the last word in the book. The gospel is going to spread through the boldness of his people proclaiming it, and it will spread, last word, final word, unhindered. Unhinderedly. And that's a great encouragement to us. Of course, in the immediate context, these words describe the very manner in which the Apostle Paul proclaims Christ in Rome. But in the context of the book, they summarize what we've seen again and again and again all the way through. They tell us two things, that they tell us something about the gospel, it's on this unhindered journey, and they tell us something about the church, that we ought to be an undaunted people. So let's take that first point, the unhindered journey of the gospel. The gospel is on a journey, the good news about Jesus Christ, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return is on a journey. It's on an unstoppable and a successful journey. That journey was mapped out for us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Just before Jesus ascended to the heavenly throne, he said to this tiny band of followers, you will be my witnesses. Now, witnesses tell the truth about the things that they've seen and heard. That's all that Jesus is asking them to do. That's what I want you to do, he says. Open your mouths. Tell people the gospel truth. Tell them it's true. I died and rose again. Tell them what it means that forgiveness is found in me and they can know the joy of reconciliation with the Father and a part in this forever kingdom of mine. Where are the disciples to testify to this? In all Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And there's the journey right there. It's the sat-nav is set to the ends of the earth, being the desired destination. Then we see the rest of the book showing us that that was indeed the, the journey the gospel took. So in Acts chapters 1 to 7, we find the disciples sharing the gospel in Jerusalem. They are filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. And Peter preaches to all those people who were gathered they're meeting every day then in the temple, declaring the mighty works of God. They're sharing the gospel with the religious, religious leaders of the day who say to them, stop that. Stop talking about this good news. We forbid it. To which they reply, we can't. And shortly after that, they do what they can to maintain an emphasis on preaching the gospel when church politics seeks to get, seems to get in the way. And when they do... Luke is very careful to insert a sentence that acts like a bridge to the next section, the next stage, if you like, of the journey of the gospel. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, he writes, The word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So there's Jerusalem. Then in chapters 8 to 12, we found the disciples sharing the gospel in Judea and Samaria, north and south. How did this happen? Well, the death of the first Christian martyr caused a scattering of God's people. Stephen was killed. People were dispersed. Philip found himself in Samaria up in the north, then on the desert road to the south in Judea. He shares the gospel with an Ethiopian official who believes the gospel and then takes it back to Africa. Peter ends up in a place called Caesarea, and he discovers God to be indiscriminate in the offer of his grace when Cornelius, the Gentile, and his family experience their own Pentecost, 
The Spirit falls on them and confirms the fact that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but for the nations. Oh, and then some guy called Saul meets Jesus and finds out that Jesus is sending him to open the eyes of the nations. But before we even get to him, in chapter 12 and verse 24, there's another one of these sentences. Another little marker that Luke has helpfully inserted for us to show us about where the, the, the gospel is about to move on to another stage. We've had Jerusalem, we've had Judea and Samaria, and he says the word of God continued to increase and spread. In the very next chapter, in chapter 13, all the way through to 28, we find the disciples sharing the gospel in Asia and Europe as it travels on its way to the ends of the earth. The gospel reaches Antioch, and Antioch becomes a sending base. From there, the gospel reaches into parts of modern-day Turkey, and some major cities at key crossroads in the whole Roman Empire across Europe. And again and again, we find Luke's markers. Chapter 19, verse 20. The word of God spread widely and grew in power. City after city, region after region, people who believed in Jesus and told the truth about Jesus, and people believed in Jesus. And as we've seen in recent weeks, the word just kept journeying on and on and on. Why am I telling you all this? Why be reminded of this? Well, I think it's important to think about how it all began. It, small beginnings, really. It was such a small band of followers. In Acts 1, we read that there were around 120 in the very beginning who were just there and gathered. But then, it's, though it started just in that one little location, in no time at all, without the help of money and social media and advertisements and all kinds of things that might be employed today when you're trying to spread word about something. The gospel spread incredibly. Like that should not be lost on us. That is nothing short of miraculous. It was, in a sense, viral. In fact, the spread of the gospel like that, as I, as I read these chapters, always makes me think of those kind of movies where a virus threatens to wipe out mankind, you know, like contagion. My life does not revolve around movies, I do want to clarify. But there's always a scene in those movies where, you know, all the generals, the politicians, and the scientists, they're all in this underground bunker, and there's this colossal screen behind them. And then you've got the guy who's clearly the scientist with a little laser pointer, and he's pointing, and he says, here is the spread of the virus. They always sound a little bit boring, don't they? Um, here is a spread of the virus at two days, three days, click, seven days, click, two weeks, click, eight weeks, click, 12 weeks, total human extinction. You know, you see on the map all the dots spread and so on. And that's really the picture that we get from this reading of the book of Acts, the exponential growth of this gospel as it journeys in an unstoppable journey from Jerusalem and that tiny band of weak failures, really. And to see the way that it spreads so significantly is incredible. It is incredible. And the thing that makes the spread so amazing is that nothing can stop it. Luke has helped us see the unstoppable momentum of this gospel. Religious authorities threatened to stop it in its tracks. 
internal greed with Ananias and Sapphira threatened to stop her in his tracks. It would have blown up with the reputation of Christ would be left in tatters if God's judgment wasn't exercised there. And of course, hypocrisy from people inside the church threatened to stop it in its tracks. Church politics threatened to stop it in its tracks. Persecution, martyrdom, storms, shipwrecks, law courts, imprisonments, everything threatened to stop the gospel in its tracks. But Luke has shown us again and again and again, it wasn't, the gospel was not hindered by anything. In fact, it's truer to say that the spread of the gospel was accelerated by these things. It spread despite these things. Isn't that what we saw in Acts 8? As I mentioned, Stephen was killed as the first martyr. And in verse 1, it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, so that all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then verse 4 says, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever it went. Shows us the vibrancy of the gospel, the power that is contained within this word, that even people as they are scattered, as they share it, well, people believe it. So the first thing that we see in summary is that the gospel is on a journey. It's on an unstoppable and successful journey, and Jesus promised that that would be the case. Even in the parable of the mustard seed in Matthew 13, he said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which a man took, planted in its field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. In other words, something so small is going to grow so big, it's going to provide a home to other things. And even the birds in that passage hark back to Jeremiah, who compares the nations to the birds who will rest in that tree. It's God's great work. This gospel is growing all over the earth, and the living things that weren't even an organic part of it originally will find this kingdom of God to be their home. Now, nothing can stand in the way of the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is one thing we must see from our studies in this book of Acts. So what hinders us? What hinders us from sharing it? What obstacles do we see in the way? Maybe we see cultural obstacles like secularism and the cultural negativity toward Christianity, humanism and the, the opposition of anything Christian in society. Maybe it's materialism and the insatiable lust for stuff. It could be persecution of various forms. It could be many things. But maybe it's not a cultural thing for us. Maybe it's a religious thing like, well, violent oppression from Hindus in Orissa or ISIS jihadis in Syria. Maybe it's the biggest obstacle to us sharing the gospel is something that is personal. Maybe it's our confidence or lack of it as a barrier to the ends of the earth being reached. Or 
our knowledge or apparent lack of it that will make us feel like we're a kind of terminus point for the gospel, no onward journey from here. But friends, Acts has told us that the gospel is on this unstoppable journey and nothing, not even the things that I've mentioned, should even prove to be a barrier to us. For Jesus himself in Matthew 24, 14 said, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. In other words, this spread will happen. And just as Paul was unhindered in his sharing of the gospel and his proclamation in Rome, we as a church, in fact, the church throughout the ages, is unhindered in her proclamation, wherever she is and in whatever time she's in. Now, what should that make us? Well, in a word, bold. If the gospel really is unstoppable, then we ought to be an undaunted people. And that's what we see in our second point. That's what we see in the book of Acts. And what, do these, what, what, what have we seen these undaunted people in Acts do as we've studied the book together? Well, we've seen a couple of things. We've seen them speak the truth with boldness. That's what we find Paul doing again in Acts 28, 31. For two years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and boldly welcomed, and welcomed, I'm getting the word in too quickly, and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, boldness, what kind of boldness are we actually talking about here? Um, Boldness can be both a virtue and a vice, can't it? I mean, Donald Trump, he's bold, isn't he? He is bold. He's fascinating. I can't stop watching the guy. It's really a crazy obsession. Um, but he's bold in a kind of overly confident way. Uh, he's, a, he's a very arrogant man. Um, and that kind of boldness, you would say, is a vice. But what about Paul's boldness here? Is he being Trump-like in his proclamation? Is he just not caring about what other people say? And he's just saying, no, no, shush, 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 shush. And he's ready to tell them the gospel. No, have you seen Trump do that anyway? Um, So Paul is, Paul's Paul's boldness is a virtuous boldness in what ways? Well, John Stott tells us with crystal clarity. Paul's boldness denotes speech, which is candid with no concealment of truth, clear with no obscurity of expression, confident with no fear of consequences. That is a virtuous type of boldness that ought to describe not just Paul's proclamation, but yours and mine. What words would you use to describe your sharing of the gospel or even your attitude to or activity in mission? Some might say dishonest, actually. Uh, We maybe fudge the truth because we don't want to offend anyone. Unclear. Uh, We blurt or fumble our explanation because we've maybe been irresponsible in preparation for these moments. Or timid, uh, fearful of the consequences of our sharing this, whether it's in a relationship or in a job. Well, what causes this? And why 
Should that not be an issue? I mean, the gospel, as we've said, is on this unstoppable journey. It's a journey that's mapped out by Jesus and driven forward by his Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a second. And therefore, the obstacles need not be obstacles for us. All of these things that we've learned through the book of Acts together ought to encourage us to speak candidly with no concealment of truth, clearly with no obscurity of expression, and confidently with no fear of consequences. Acts provides reason after reason for being bold. And alongside the fact that the gospel is on this unstoppable journey, we have this knowledge that God gives us even as Jesus spoke about in Acts chapter 1, that we're not left to do this on our own. He sends us help, a heavenly power that drives us, a heavenly person, I ought to say, the Holy Spirit himself. He is the one who is driving the church's mission. In Acts 1, Jesus said to his disciples, wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then in Acts chapter 2, we saw the Holy Spirit come upon the disciples and we see this, they burst out of the doors and start proclaiming the mighty works of God. And in that passage, we see this direct link between the filling of the Spirit and speaking and the filling of the Spirit and fearlessness. So there's that bold boldness, this undauntedness. And when they're filled with the power Jesus promised, they all speak. And when they're filled with the power Jesus promised, they throw open the doors and declare these mighty works. And every ounce of timidity and hesitancy and caution, even, are swallowed up in the knowledge of God's greatness in the knowledge of God's purpose and of the knowledge of the Holy Spirit who is at work, as we saw in John, to not only guide them into truth and remind them of all that Jesus had said and done, but the same Holy Spirit who is going before them at work in the world to convict the world of guilt in regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment. All of these things should Give us encouragement, for the same Holy Spirit lives in us. The heavenly power that filled them with words to say and the boldness to say it lives in us. Doesn't that give you hope in regards to evangelism? Of meeting people who don't know Christ and encouraging them to know him. And talking to people about Jesus. That as we talk about Jesus with our friends, our colleagues, our family members, the Spirit is at work in them and us. It should encourage us. It should. Jesus says in John 14, 14, that the same Holy Spirit will bring glory to Jesus by taking what is Christ's and making it known to us. In other words, he preaches Christ to us. The Holy Spirit preaches Jesus to us so that our hearts are filled with joy, our minds are filled with truth, and our words are filled with power. All of these things together should encourage us 
And that's why we ought to boldly go and finish the mission. This is why we've walked through Acts. This is why we've taken our time to do so. The last 18 months, it has been our prayer to that we as a church family together might be encouraged to be bolder. We might be courageous, better prepared even, with a knowledge of the gospel that we ought to share. And this great reminder of the fact that this is the church's key assignment. And this is what the church does until Jesus returns. This is the mission that we should never ever lose sight of and never ever become complacent in. There's too much at stake for us to do this. The church exists to extend this apostolic witness to Jesus everywhere in this world by the power of the Spirit. That's why we ought to be concerned about the people in our city, especially of the younger generations who have not grown up with any knowledge of church life or Christian teaching in school, people who don't have a Bible, and we ought to share the gospel. This is why we ought to have a serious concern for the nations and the fact that even today there are unreached people groups where there are people who are dying right now who have no knowledge that there is a God in heaven who loves them and sent his son Jesus to rescue them from their sin. We are called to go. And we should take this seriously. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand why we take this very seriously. A little bit further on, uh, a little bit earlier in that passage that I read from at the start of our service in John chapter 14, Jesus declares that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father through him. And the reason why he's placed this task of sharing the good news about him with us, everyone in this church, and those who are Christians throughout the world, is so that people, might, people like you might recognize that there is a God in heaven who loves you. And that currently in your sin, you're separated from him. But that he did something about that. He died for that sin. Jesus died for that sin and rose again so that we might have life in his name. If you would only take hold of it by turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus. My encouragement is for you to do that tonight. Talk to the person that brought you. Ask them to help you understand this. But we are called as a church, and I pray we will never lose sight of this, to make disciples of all nations. And we do not stop until Jesus returns or until we finish the mission. Those two things are held together in Matthew 24, 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Since this gospel is unhindered in its journey, let us be undaunted in our mission. Let's pray.